Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, a conversation with one of America's top public health officials. Our healthcare system is based off of payment, payments for certain specific services. We need to shift that because there's no incentive to keep the patients healthy to begin with. In this week's episode, we sit down with Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health with the Department of Health and Human Services. We spoke with Trent Adams about the need to shift America's healthcare system to a prevention model, strategies for addressing complex health challenges, and how being a nurse has shaped the Rear Admiral's career. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levin. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Rear Admiral Sylvia Trent Adams knew she wanted to work in a health field when she was just a child. She pestered her mother to let her work as a candy striper at Lynchburg General Hospital in Virginia when she was just 12. Today, Trent Adams is one of the top public health officials in the U.S., serving as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services. Trent Adams served as a nurse in the U.S. Army before rising up the ranks of the U.S. Public Health Service, eventually becoming Deputy Surgeon General. In 2017, she served as Acting Surgeon General for six months, becoming just the second nurse and the first registered nurse to hold that position. Trent Adams recently visited the Harvard Chan School, and we took that opportunity to sit down with her and discuss her career and her work with the Department of Health and Human Services. Throughout her career, Trent Adams has focused on improving access to care for underserved and marginalized groups. And during my conversation with her, we discussed how improving access to care is critical for shifting America's healthcare system from one that is focused on sickness and treatment to one that promotes prevention. During the conversation, you'll also hear how nursing has informed Trent Adams' public health work, plus how she is working to address complex issues ranging from HIV to America's opioid epidemic. Take a listen. Can you explain what you do in your role as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Health? We do a lot of work around planning, coordinating um, program matters as it relates to health, specifically public health. And we work on policy and program development. We also work with many of the legislative programs that fall under the offices as Secretary for Health. Anything from population affairs to adolescent health and also women's health and minority health. We also manage the 10 regional offices for the regional health administrators across the, the United States and uh, many other secretarial advisory committees that we manage with, uh, on behalf of the department. So I know we'll, we'll, we'll get into kind of your current work in a few minutes, but I do want to talk a little bit about your career and kind of how you got to this point because I think that's really interesting. And I know you began as a nurse officer in the U.S. Army. So, so what made you initially want to work in the health field and, and particularly nursing? Well, I think from a very early age, I liked helping people. My grandmother was one of my role models, and, and she used to go to relatives' homes when they were sick. She'd cook for them. She'd make sure they had everything they needed. And I watched that over my, early in my childhood, as well as having role models that were nurses. I had a great aunt who was a nurse, and I loved her stories about her patients and the, the interesting things that she learned throughout her career were, inspired me to want to look at other career fields in health. And I think nursing stuck when I became a candy striper when I was 12 years old. I bugged my mother, literally from the time I was 10 till I was 12, to let me become a volunteer. I wanted to be a candy striper. And um, we checked into it, and I learned that I couldn't do it until I was 12. But it exposed me to the sights and sounds of the hospital and learning more about how many roles there were for people to play in the, in the clinical environment. And I really enjoyed working with um, the staff, but I was intrigued by the work that nurses did. And also their amount of the amount of contact that they had with patients, and just the relationships that you build with patients and their families, and what a difference you can make in someone's life. 
So I know after the Army, you joined the U.S. Public Health Service Commission. So what made you kind of having had that background in nursing, kind of more on the, the clinical patient side, what made you then interested in kind of branching out in, into public health? Well, it started actually while in the Army. I became, um, I did a lot of things clinically when I was in the Army, but one of the areas that I worked in was preventive medicine and infectious diseases. And one of the infectious diseases that I worked with was HIV. As when I came out of nursing school in 1987, um, I'm dating myself here, but in 1987, we were at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I saw so many patients who were being discriminated against, who were being left without care, and just seeing so many of them not receiving the type of treatment that they needed or deserved. And uh, I got involved. I wanted to, I became a volunteer at some of the aid service organizations. And I learned through the, through the military how to provide HIV care through clinically, my training as a preventive medicine um, expert, as well as being a community health nurse. And so from that, I had an opportunity to meet some nurses at the National Institutes of Health at a conference. And one of them just recruited me directly. She says, oh, you, I hear you do HIV. And I said, I do. And she said, I think you would be great for one of our programs. And I said, okay. <laughs> had a meeting and not knowing that was my interview and was um, hired to help um, stand up some of the Ryan White programs. And the rest is history. And so for people who aren't familiar, what, what were the, the, the Ryan White programs? Can you give a sense of what that was? Certainly. So the Ryan White program started in 1990. And it has now grown into um, one of the largest H what is it, one of the largest HIV care delivery systems in this country, and they have a pr the program is set up so that the state, the local jurisdictions, and the community-based organizations all have their own specific category of funding within the law. What it does is it provides comprehensive HIV care for individuals living with HIV who are uninsured or underinsured or who lack some access to care. And it provides it in their own community, um, culturally appropriate, family-centered care, and meets a holistic meets the holistic requirements of, of an individual. So some people need clinical care, but others may need just transportation. Some people may need food um, or nutritional services, and others may simply need counseling. And so with, depending on where you come into the system, you can get any service that you need um, based on the priority and the availability of services in that, in that um, community. But there is a mechanism to do an assessment um, every year on what the needs in the communities, what the community may be, and then a mechanism to prioritize those needs and then pay for it through the Ryan White program. So you, you mentioned that experience of kind of working with HIV patients and seeing discrimination or access to care issues. I mean, how did that experience, I think, a, as a nurse, kind of affect your career in public health? Like, do you think that gives you a different perspective on issues than maybe someone who doesn't have that background? I would think so. I think um, having had that firsthand experience, it was very emotional for me being a young nurse and seeing some of the dynamics play out. But the fear of some of the providers about HIV is still very clear in my mind and how that felt to see providers afraid to take care of a patient. Um, but what I, what I experienced was um, meeting people who were just like everybody else. They just happened to have HIV. And I wanted to be able to make a difference. And I couldn't do that. I could do it, continue to do it one patient at a time, but I wanted to see what could we do for a community or for a state or for a region. And that's what the Ryan White program allowed me to do, is to use those clinical skills in a way that I was able to have an impact on policy, but also developing programs, both domestically and internationally. It's interesting to hear you say that, because I think so many of our students say that, especially if they come from you know, more of a clinical background, that I saw this inequity in a patient or I saw this and I realized I could make a difference for one person but I couldn't affect 
the whole. It seems like such a powerful argument for kind of the power of public health. It is. I think public health, the field allows you to be very diverse in your skill set, but it definitely allows you to build on those leadership building blocks and those competencies to be able to influence policy, to be able to um, position yourself to negotiate for your patients or for a community or for a state or, or nationally in a way that you can't when you're in the one-on-one patient care environment. And that's very powerful because you can make a difference. Um, you can also see the change over time on a population and be able to back it up with facts. You can look at the data. You can see that the, the incidence of HIV is decreasing in a community when you've helped to build a, a care delivery system or you've been able to implement mental health counseling for a population who may have had high suicide rates and you see that those numbers start to decline, you can measure the impact. And that's so powerful. It's important. And I think those are the skill sets that we develop in public health. You learn how to be the, the scientist, the statistician, the policymaker, but also using those clinical skills, the public health skills, to be able to impact change in a given environment. So now I know in your current role, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning, I mean, you're, you, you really are focused on the policy side. So, so what are some of the big issues that that, that you're working on now? What are some of your top priorities at the moment? Right now, our top priorities is, is getting a, a handle on the, uh, the opioid epidemic, um, helping to implement the 10-year HIV strategy, and also, for the first time, is doing an, an ST, a sexually transmitted disease strategy and moving forward on a number of population health issues to help improve both access, quality, and the cost of care. And so when it comes to access to care, what are some of the biggest barriers, I guess, that, that, that you're seeing in this role, and how do you work to address those? So I think we, we, one thing in the Office of Assistant Secretary for Health is that we are the, the innovations engine for the department, and we leverage our relationships with the OPDIVs, the, the HRSAs, the NIHs, and the CDCs, who are the operation divisions, operating divisions of, of HHS, to be able to help them to launch new initiatives, to fund new projects, new programs. We may come up with the idea, and we may do some of the testing, and then work with the, um, the, those larger agencies to be able to implement it. And once we see some science and some outcomes from those programs, we can then leverage it across all the other components within HHS, such as the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. You, learn, you have lessons learned from the NIH. They can change what trajectory of care. We're seeing great work coming out of the sickle cell arena, coming out of NIH. Now we're working with CMS and other partners to look at what can be done to now improve the health outcomes for that population. It may be something very different as it relates to TB or HIV. Um, specifically as it relates to HIV, we know that PrEP works. We know that we can decrease the community viral load. You can decrease the likelihood of, of infection um, in, in a given community. So those are the kinds of things that OASH pushes, is that taking what we know and making it, um, making it as a, a policy implement, implementation strategy for a given um, community or within the optives. So is, is one of your challenges, I guess, that NIH, all these kind of different other arms might have different priorities, different funding needs, so it's kind of part of your job making the case of, hey, this is something that you do need to support or that you do need to implement? We do some of that, yes. But I think what we do is we build these relationships and build partnerships with the other agencies to help them understand what they may not know about the HRSAs. And the, the, what NIH does, HRSA may not know about. I think our Assistant Secretary for Health does a fantastic job of building relationships with the leadership of individual agencies, bringing them to the table, having robust discussions about how we can improve um, access or quality or decreasing disparities and inequities in health, 
and then working with those part through those partnerships to build programs or new initiatives that will break down those barriers or I- increase communication to allow us to fund or change the way in which we do business to better um, to have better out- outcomes in a community. I was listening to a presentation you gave, and it was interesting you mentioned innovation because there was a presentation on the role of nurses as innovators. And I really liked what you just, you said. You said America doesn't have a healthcare system; it has a sick care system. Um, so why is that, and how do you, in your role and your office's role, kind of work to shift that balance? That is an excellent question, and I think this is something we're grappling with right now. Is our, our healthcare system, or the lack thereof, is based off of payment? payments for certain specific services. For many, many years, it was a fee-for-service model. Um, A a provider would get a fee for every visit, so it was volume-based. And then we moved to a a capitated system where you have a per capita rate for per per patient or per insured um, beneficiary for, for a given year. And the providers were then encouraged to have fewer visits to maximize the cost of, of, the, of the care that they were delivering over the course of a year. We need to shift that because on, in both those scenarios, there's no incentive to keep the patients healthy to begin with. And I think if we look at, as the Secretary has outlined and the ASH has talked about as well, value-based care, we would, be, we, we would build a model of care and reimbursement that pays for health outcomes. The healthier you keep your patients, the better your outcomes are going to be and the better your reimbursement should be. But we have to, we can only do that through having a prevention model that allows people to stay healthy to begin with and having better knowledge provided to individuals over the span of their lives about how to stay, how to be healthy and how to stay healthy and building models that incentivize, um, you know, positive behavior around having options for, you know, healthy eating, encouraging people to exercise more, to move more, and recognize that there are different cultural and linguistic barriers to getting information as well as care and helping to level set those, those environments so they can get the information that they need and also make the right choices to be healthy. And we, we touched on access to care a few minutes ago, but to dig a little deeper into that, I mean, how important is access to care as part of that kind of shift towards prevention, especially with the barriers? Maybe it's you know, a doctor isn't available in your community, there's language barriers. So how important is improving access to care in terms of meeting that goal of prevention? Access is really important, but it's access to the right kind of care. Um, I know many people who have, who have health insurance, so they have access to the care, to a provider, but they don't have the time to go see a provider because they work from what, you know, XYZ hours and the doctor is only available during those hours. But even beyond that, where are their providers located? And this is, you know, I, I think we need to get back to basics and take care out of an environment whereby the patients have to always go see the provider and get the provider out to where the patients are. And that applies to a primary care model, but also the prevent, prevention model, whereby we have providers in the community who are where people eat, sleep, work, and pray, where they can um, gain information and access to uh, modalities of, of health interventions in their schools, in their, in their faith-based community, as well as in the community centers, but also looking at novel models whereby people can get the messaging, but also having care available. We've done it with, with a lot of the immunization work. Mm-hmm. I know many of our um, you know, providers now understand that it's okay for the pharmacy that's open 24 hours a day to provide immunizations around the clock 
if that's more convenient for patients because we've definitely been able to increase access. We've been able to increase um, prevention efforts around smoking cessation by having pharmacists who are educated on, on being able to mitigate some of the t doing tobacco training with, with their community. So it can work. You just need to understand what the needs of that community are and having a, a system that is based off of prevention before we even, and trying to keep people well instead of waiting until someone's sick to have an intervention with a provider. And you, it's interesting you talk about like listening to the community because I, I re another set of remarks I was reading you, you were talking about kind of public health as community health and kind of this importance of going to the community and listening. So how do, how do you do that? Like determine, okay, this can, you know, because this can, one community here might have different needs, another community all the way across the country. So how do you go about doing that kind of assessing what the different community needs might be and how they differ? Well, in my current role, it's working with the stakeholders at the local level. And the stakeholders may vary from community to community, or within one community, you can have subpopulations um, that have different needs. And I think we need to be very cognizant of how we engage as health, as health policy leaders, as health care providers, how we engage with the leaders in a given community. And I will tell you, it varies from one community to the other. I learned this in working in the Ryan White program. Um, I can tell you that working in the, in the southeast of the United States, you cannot get to certain populations at, high, at the highest risk for HIV unless you had buy-in from the faith-based community. In other, in other areas, you could not reach those um, communities of youth unless you work with the school systems, unless you work with the, with, with the um, athletic programs because that's where they spent their time. In ha having an, an understanding of how to reach people, what do they do, understand, doing that needs assessment, if you will, and I call it your getting get, you know, in, your inside information, um, do some reconnaissance, as we say in the military, get the intel on what makes your community tick and know how to engage. Who are the stakeholders? Who are the leaders, the informal leaders? Not just the mayor or not just the, the state health officer, but who do they trust? Who do they believe when they say that this intervention is, is going to be successful? Those are the people we should be working with. And some of them may be the moms, some may be the coaches, some of them may be the barbershop or the beauty, beauty salon owner. Um, that's where people get their information, and those trusted stakeholders will be able to speak in a language and address with respect the needs of that community and will definitely be able to give you some insight on how and what will work um, in that community. It's interesting because on one hand, I mean, there is like a medical health challenge, but it seems like the biggest barrier is like at first is that trust and communication. If you can get over that, then you kind of have your, your way in and you can start to address things on the ground. I think one of the things I learned in nursing school is that you can't teach people who are not ready to learn. And you can't um, have people to trust you if you're not invested in that relationship so that they have something to trust about, trust with you. They have that trusted relationship with you. You may they may you want them to trust you, then you have to invest the time to make sure they understand that you're there to help them, to work with them, but not there just to give them, you know, a didactic lesson on you must be healthy and here's what you have to do to get there. It's it doesn't it's not that easy, not that simple. It's hard work. And I know for in many communities it it took us years to be able to be to to have people accept um, HIV as a part of their community. Uh, even though we knew there were cases in, in, in high numbers in some communities, it was not, and it was not accepted, and it was not seen as a value to the community to even talk about HIV. Mm. Now, after many, after investing the time, find the stakeholders, and having trusted amb ambassadors, if you will, 
to work with us to build trust and build a relationship over time we were able to intervene and have programs built and resources being deployed in that community and having some success in building a program that is still in existence in a lot of those communities but rural and underserved is challenging always because of the lack of trust with government lack of trust with providers and we those are things we have to overcome by building relationships with them you, you talked a second ago about kind of that lesson from the Ryan Ray programs, and I'm wondering if there's anything from your experience working around HIV that can maybe be applied to what you're currently dealing with with the opioid epidemic. Like, are there lessons learned from there that you might be able to apply, apply today? That is an ex- exactly the, the case with opioids. I think with the opioid epidemic, we're seeing it in rural and underserved communities. Uh, what we learned with the HIV epidemic was that to build systems of, of care, systems of delivery, and those types of populations, or populations that didn't trust the government, you had to have the, just what I talked about, um, ambassadors within the community who were willing to work with you to bring services in and, and be able to raise the knowledge and awareness and have people believe that you were there to help and you were going to do it on their terms. And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now. A lot of great work is happening um, in some of the opioid programming that's going on in the country. We're seeing declines in some areas, um, and I, I know that that's because the having the naloxone available because you know it's it's critical at the community level, not just in, in in provider settings, but in the community because the vast majority of of overdoses is not happening in hospitals and clinics. It's happening in the community, and so working with the community to to understand that you being trained on how to administer naloxone and being able to have it available if you're around a high uh, you know a high using community uh, then those things can save a life and those are basic skills that any provider or any community um, anyone in the community could learn it's so interesting you mentioned that because i was at my pharmacy the other day and they actually had a flyer for like naloxone and like getting a dosage and training so i mean i it was one of those things where it kind of hit me that one the scope of the problem but two that everyday people are kind of experiencing that and you know it's it's most times the the first person responding is not going to be like an EMT it could just be someone on the on the street absolutely and i think the surgeon general um, vice admiral adams has done a phenomenal job in messaging about the importance of having naloxone available in in high risk communities mm-hmm. uh, he issued an advisory last year about the importance of you know having a standing order in every pharmacy um, making community leaders aware of the risk um, associated with opioid overdoses, equipping the community with the information that they needed, but also training on how to administer naloxone, and then decreasing the stigma associated with, um, with, with substance misuse, and decreasing some of the barriers for people who wanted to get involved and help, um, decreasing those barriers for them to be able to get access to naloxone. We have seen significant increases in the um, prescriptions for naloxone. We've seen significant um, uptake in the delivery of naloxone as well. Uh, but we have a long way to go. We still have a lot of work to do, and I think um, the more we talk about it, the more we engage with community leaders and, and folks and, and, and family members, with, with family members as well as with leaders, uh, the better off we are in being able to get the message to those who need it most. And just the last question, you even just talked about there, kind of some of those intermediate positive steps along the way. But as you're dealing with st- really these really broad complex issues whether it's opioids um h- how do you measure success how do you measure success personally but then you the the office in general how, how do you measure success well i think the metric and and a lot of the interventions that we've implemented have been looking at the data 
looking at actual encounters as relates to number of individuals who are seeking care for substance misuse, looking at the naloxone prescriptions, looking at the decrease in the number of, um, of overdoses, looking at the deaths, the decrease in deaths associated with, with um, opioid overdoses as well. But personally, I think the success for us at the, at the highest levels within the de department is knowing that we're working towards finding solutions, working with partners to bring them to the table to decrease the barriers, um, implementing policies and programs, and also uh, making funding available. And I think a lot of work has been done um, in, in the last two years around uh, recognizing the importance of having uh, a response to the opioid epidemic. And so I think over the course of this year alone, $1.4 billion will go out in those state opioid response programs funded through SAMHSA. That's a lot of money for care and treatment and interventions that will help people who are dealing with opioid overdoses and substance misuse. That was my conversation with Sylvia Trent Adams. We want to thank the Rear Admiral for carving out some time from her busy schedule to speak with us. And if you want to learn more about her work and how nursing has played a key role in her career, we'll have more information on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. Just a programming note that we'll be having a longer break than usual between new episodes, but we'll be back after Memorial Day with an all-new episode. In the meantime, you can always dig into our past episodes by checking us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. <laughs>